Happy New Year again. Today, I'm super excited to begin a brand new three-part series called Prove It. Called Prove It. Uh, we'll be answering three important questions that many today are asking these questions. Uh, today is, does God exist? Does God exist? Next week, super excited, just finished that message. Is Christianity anti-science? Make sure you don't miss that one. Then we'll wrap it up with, is the Bible really God's word? See, in our church today, in your school, in your workplace, in many homes, there's pretty much three groups of people. There are skeptics. Atheist, um, agnostic, secularist. They're skeptics. And there's also seekers. They don't know, but they're, they're pursuing, they're checking out, seeing what, what, is, what is true and what is not. So we got skeptics, seekers, and believers. And believers. And this series, I believe, could help any of those in all three categories. Now, you may be here as a believer and go, well, I, I already know the answers to all those, so why should I come? Let me ask you this question. If your coworker or if your family member asked you these questions, could you answer them with a great answer? Because there are answers. Could you answer them? Well, I'll just tell them that, you know, the Bible says, what if they say, I don't believe the Bible? Then what? Today, I believe it could be a big help to you uh, if, even answer the question without ever opening your Bible. If you've been around a while, you know we love the Bible. This is our source, this is our power and our authority and foundation. But we live in a post-Christian society. It's getting uh, far, further and further away from, from uh, the word of God. So how would you answer? Now, when it comes to questions, let me give you just a kind of a red light cult alert. A red light cult alert. Uh, be very wary of any church or any pastor who discourages or ignores and doesn't want anybody to ask questions. Typically, not all the time, but a lot of times, that's, that's a sign that that's a cult. Don't ask any questions. The reason why I say that is the truth is not afraid of any question. It's okay. It's okay to ask questions because there's answers to be found. And in fact, I think of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, John the Dipper, Dunker. That, that, it wasn't a... It wasn't a you know, a, a gathering of Baptist people. It was, that's what he did. He baptized people. Even he had an honest but skeptical question about Jesus. So he's, in, he's, in, he's under arrest, so he sends some of his followers to Jesus with his question. And Luke says this, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask. Here's the question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for, that's been promised to us that, that he would come? Are you him or should we look other places, look for someone else? He was having doubts. Jesus didn't respond with hurt or offense. I can't believe you asked that question. He didn't respond with anger. Jesus responded to these men and said, hey, actually go back and tell John all the things that you're seeing, all these things that are taking place. And he didn't say these words, but what he described is these things that are taking place right now, only a divine Messiah could do those things. And then he turns to the crowd 
And he says, in fact, this, um, of all people who have ever been born of a woman, there is no one greater than John. See, Jesus wasn't afraid of questions, but we have questions, legitimate questions today. So we're gonna unpack some of these. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is because today we're gonna talk about does God exist? It's an ancient question. It's a modern day question that many are asking, skeptics, believer, believers, e- even seekers, and there are answers. Now, right out of the gate, I wanna give some props and give some acknowledgements to several people who have greatly helped me in my, in my research over the last several months. I wanna acknowledge Frank Turek and Kyle Butt. Yes, that's his last name. I can only imagine when he was in middle school but they have been a great help today. And also have a prop because um, I, got, I had to share a Christmas gift uh, to you. Here's this Christmas gift. If you're taking notes, the central point <laughs> is this right here, all right? Because I say that all the time, right? If you're taking notes, the central point is this. For those who search on a search, The fingerprints of God are all around us. They are from a God who wants to be found and he wants to be known. Anyone who search, I mean, genuinely you're seeking, is there a God? There's fingerprints of God everywhere. It's a God, he's a God that wants to be be found and wants to be known. So Paul in chapter 17 of Acts, we know that he's in Athens, kind of the intellectual center of the known world at that time. And, and he was there and he went to a very famous place where the debates took place and all the theological, philosophical uh, conversations took place. The Aragopas uh, was that place. Um, that, that was the Greek name for this place. The Roman name for this section, this area was called Mars Hill. And so, and so Paul goes there, and we pick up in chapter 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of, of the Aragopas and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, meaning you, you're covering all your bases. Make sure you don't forget a God, but you don't know anything about this unknown God. He says, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Let me tell you about God. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Everything comes from him. Verse 26. From one man, it's talking about Adam. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, meaning God gave, this is the time this person's gonna live. And he marked out the boundaries of their lands. This is where they're gonna live. God did this so that they would seek him 
and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. He's right here. For in him, we live and move and have our being. See, for those who search for God, the fingerprints of God are all around us. They are from a God who wants to be found and he wants to be known. In fact, scripture says, God says, if you seek me, you will find me. So if you're here today watching online or a friend recommended you watch this, uh, this message today, if you have a genuine, honest search for God, is there a God? I'll keep searching. I'm glad you're here, glad you're watching. You'll find him. The God of the Bible, you will find him. Now, Socrates was famous for this saying. He said this, we should follow the argument wherever it leads. I mean, this is kind of the foundation uh, for, for philosophers, for people who are searching after truth. We should follow the arguments wherever it leads. So I'm gonna give three proofs, three arguments for the existence of God. Here's the first one. Here's the first argument, here's the first proof is this, is that the universe must have a cause. The universe must have a cause. The most foundational law of science is this, it's the law of cause and effect. It's the law of cause and effect. Now you are sitting in this room, you're watching online, your heart is pumping, blood is coursing through your body, you are the effect. You're alive. Now, who caused that? Your parents, your biological mom and your biological father. They were the cause, you are the effect. Now, I want you to think of someone in your mind as I describe this next illustration. You can think of their name, all right? Someone that you know, roommate or family member, son, daughter, teenager, uh, even spouse, uh, someone in your family that has this dramatic effect on a bedroom, okay? Before they come home, the bedroom, it looks like this. Before they come home from college, before they come, you know, to visit, it looks like this. And about five minutes after they have arrived, the room has this effect. Raise your hand if you know of someone, all right? You, you know of a friend, okay? This is the effect. Who is the cause? You can tell their name. <laughs> Some are like, I don't think I want to do it. They're sitting right next to me, right? This is the effect. Who caused it? See, that's the law of science, cause and effect. And everything that is, that's all around us, is pointing. Everything has, they're saying, researchers Science, discovery, agnostics, atheists, or there now, not, they weren't there, but they are there now, that everything is pointing to that the universe had a beginning. It wasn't always eternal. It wasn't always there, that there was a beginning, beginning. Uh, Stephen Hawkins, who died a few years ago, he's the one who discovered uh, that there's radiation coming out of black holes. He has this, he had this quote while he was alive. Uh, he says this, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning 
and he refers to it as at the big bang, meaning everyone now knows that there was a start. There wasn't a forever universe out there. There, it, there was a beginning. Uh, a Russian cosmologist by the name uh, of Alexander Vilenkin says this, and, and he's, he's agnostic. All right? He says this, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is now no escape. They must, they, they have to face the, pro, the problem of a cosmetic beginning. There's proof. There was a beginning. There was a beginning. Now, there's two primary views uh, as we're wrestling through this cosmic beginning. Uh, there are those, and I'm one of those who believes that there was a creator, capital C, who spoke and bang, it happened. Th that's what I believe, all right? But those who don't believe that there was a divine intervention in the cosmologist world, there is a phrase that's called a, they refer to as a singularity. A singularly happened. What is the meaning of singularity? It means this, something popped into existence from nothing. The problem with that is where's the scientific data that says that nothing has created anything ever. So we're, we're left with really two choices. Choice number one is that no one created something out of nothing. No one created something out of nothing. Or the second option is someone created something out of nothing. It really comes down to those two primary areas. And that doesn't say that that's what the answer is. We don't know how it happened, but no one did it. It just happened. Or someone did it, don't know who, but someone created something out of nothing. So th this is a theistic answer approach that, that God did it, and this is an atheistic approach. There is no God. No one created it. It just happened. Dr. Frank Turek, who was um, involved, he was in the Navy for his career. I think he was a fighter pilot, and while he was there, he was an agnostic, uh, thinking he was also maybe an atheist, didn't know, and a, a buddy in the Navy he was asking questions and finally said, hey, you need to go read some books by Josh McDowell, Evidence Demands a Verdict. And, and he started down that path because he literally had an honest search for truth and ended up becoming a, a, a believer and, and is now one of the leading apologetics uh, prof professors or speakers in our country, meaning a defense of, of, of you know, the Bible and God and all that. And he said this about something having a beginning. He says, if space, time, and matter had a beginning, if space, time, and matter had a beginning, the only thing that could cause that is something that transcends space, time, and matter. Anybody, are you tracking with me? Are you tracking with me? Okay, if there is a beginning of space, time, and matter, there's something, the cause of that has to, has to transcend, it has to be, be above that, beyond that. He goes on to say, in other words, that cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. 
It must be powerful to create the universe out of nothing. That takes a lot of power. And personal in order to choose to create because impersonal forces don't make choices. This cause must also be intelligent to have a mind to make a choice, a choice to create. I believe that if the universe had a beginning, which there's not a lot of doubt about that, if it had a beginning, I believe then there must have been a beginner who began everything. The first argument is the universe must have a cause. The second one is this, is design demands a designer. A design, the design demands a designer. I mean, just look about our earth, look at our earth, look at our universe, look at our galaxy, look at everything. It is filled with this thing called complexity within order. Complexity within order. I mean, just look at our, our galaxy and, and more. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. It, it's just, it's vast, it's incredible, it's super intricate, it's very detailed. Look at nature and how everything works together and and when it doesn't, it causes major problems. It's just the beauty of nature. The eye, I think the eye is the, one of the most fascinating parts of the human body. It is so detailed. It is so amazing. The fact that people can have eye surgery blows my mind, all right? But it happens. It's absolutely amazing. And I think the greatest example of complexity within the context of, of order is DNA. DNA... I believe is the is the fingerprints of a all-powerful creator that there's billions and billions of really letters that make up individually who every single person is and no one's DNA is exactly the same. It is so complex. It is absolutely mind-boggling. And the things that we see, humans... Uh, often copy and mimic the designs we see in nature. Here's, here's a, a, a kind of a really beautiful bird, Kingfisher, uh, and the, the bullet train. You, know, you, you see this with other airplanes and all, all sorts of things. We, we see things with birds, and then we, we copy some of the engineering aspects of these things in nature. Um, I, I thank the Lord for Velcro. Anybody with me? All right, Velcro. All right, we made this, but there's a plant, Avon's plant, that's Velcro. It's like, okay, let's copy this to put into use in our everyday life. And then there's robotics that is exploding, expanding, and taking what we know all the time of the intricacies and of just fingers and moving all the muscles and stuff and the robotic industry is exploding. Why? We're, we're mimicking the design, you know, that, that we see in look and engineering and all of that. Design demands a designer. Why? Because big explosions don't bring complex and order at the same time. Chaos does not lead to complex functionality. Disorder cannot create order. The evidence of our complex universe and earth 
demands, I believe, an intelligent designer. There was a mind way above ours that engineered all of this, that created and designed all of this. Uh, has anybody ever been to the, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C.? Okay, no, okay, did you watch National Treasure and they walk through that? Okay, all right. It's one of the most famous libraries in the entire world. I've had a chance to be in there on a tour years and years ago. The Library of Congress was not created by an explosion in a printing shop. Intelligent minds had thoughts put into writing to publish a book that was placed in this library. The designer of those books created those effects because they were the cause. And it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing, the intelligent design that is all around us. That's the second proof or second argument that there is a God greater than all of us. The third proof that there's a God is this, moral law demands a moral lawgiver. Now I had nine things I was gonna put in this message today, but we would have been here about another hour, okay? So I just narrowed it down to three, three. Third one is a moral law demands a moral lawgiver. All right, any football fans in the room? Can I see your hands? Can I see your hands? Okay, any Seahawks who are in mourning and therapy? Okay, Washington Husky. Oh, that, that's, that hurt. That really hurt. Really hurt. All right, those of you who know football, um, when your favorite quarterback throws a touchdown and then throws a pick six, how do you know which is a good thing and which is a really bad thing? Do you know that? You cannot know that unless you understand the purpose. Because once you understand the purpose, you understand one takes you closer to the purpose called a W and one takes you away from the purpose. Are you following me? Without knowing the purpose, you don't know. And you don't understand why is everybody cheering? Why is everybody losing their mind in a bad way? But if you understand the purpose, then you know the difference. Then there's, there's this thing called the rule book. They don't huddle at every play. What does the rule book say? No, the rule book is outside of the game. There's very clear boundary lines called out of bounds. They, they have white paint on the sideline. And in, in the rule book, there's an objective law given that if you are trying to catch the ball to make it count, you had to catch it, hold on to it, and you have to have two feet in the field to play, if you don't know football, on green grass. But I, but I made a great catch and I had one foot on the grass and a quarter of an inch touched the white line. What is that called? Incomplete pass. But I tried my best. The laws of, of the, the football game goes, I don't care. Incomplete pass. See, there, there are objective 
rules given or it's not a game, it's absolute chaos. And then when the refs are very subjective, that's what causes fans to lose their minds. I'm reporting in. I'm reporting in. Sorry, Lions fans. It was subjective, and that's why the, the coach almost had an aneurysm on the sideline. But there, if you understand the purpose, you can very quickly go, that was a great thing, or that was horrible. Why is it that we instinctively, as human beings, <laughs> we instinctively don't place moral standards on our puppies and our dogs? No one told us this, but when a dog steals another dog's bone, we don't have a moral fit like, you thief, you must do jail time. That was not yours. See, we instinctively go, that's what dogs do. We don't hold them to a moral standard. Don't lose me on this. If you don't understand this, you're a child, you don't understand this, ask your parents after church. When dogs are in heat and do things that dogs do when they're in heat, when they come back to the house, it's amazing things how they can break through and do things that it's impossible. And they come back, you don't go, you Pervert, you disgusting fornicator. We don't do that because human beings are held to a different standard. It's a moral standard. Why is it that we instinctively know there are certain things that are objectively, objectively right? Here's several examples. It is right to be honest, right? It is right to show empathy at the right time. There's times to just shut your mouth and hug somebody, all right? That's the right thing. It's right to have fidelity in a relationship, being faithful. It is right to have gratitude. See, we understand all the opposite of this is like, what is your problem? That's wrong. But all of these things and much, much more, we instinctively know these are objectively right. People need to do these things. We also know there are certain things that are objectively wrong. doesn't matter what country you live in. doesn't matter what generation and, and century you live in. That lying, cheating, murder, rape, and terrorism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Instinctively, whether you know God, have a relationship with God or not, go, that's wrong. That's why we have laws. And if they're not followed, then there's more chaos. But inside of us, we instinctively know that is right and that is wrong. Why is that? Well, the Bible has answers. In Genesis chapter 1, when God created, you know, whether you believe it or not, this is what I believe. And Jesus believed it. And I believe everything Jesus says. When, when God created, you know, the, the earth, when it came to humans... God says, now I'm going to make humans in my own image. We were made in the image of God. That means there's parts of us know instinctively because made in the image of God, there's objectively right things and objectively wrong things. In Romans chapter 2, 
Paul writes that God's law has been written on the hearts of mankind. And he's like, I'm not talking about the Mosaic law for Jews. They, they got the written law. But even people that are far from God are doing crazy things. God's law has been written on the hearts of human beings. If there is no God, let me walk you through a few things. If there is no God, if there's no moral standard, there's no something that is supreme over human beings. If there's no God, the Nazis weren't wrong. That's just your opinion. At the Nuremberg trials after World War II, televised all over the known world at the time, we see it in black and white footage today, they came to this conclusion to Germans, to Nazi soldiers, to leaders in the Third Reich. They said, even though Germany said it was right to exterminate Jews. The world is saying that is wrong. That's the ultimate conclusion of the Nuremberg trials. Why is that? But if there's no God, Nazis weren't wrong. If there's no God, love is no better than rape. If there's no God, there are no human rights. If there's no God, then murder Slavery and racism aren't wrong. That's just, that's just your opinion. And if there is no God, then you can't complain about the problem of evil. Because when we complain about the problem of evil inside, again, you may not even know God and believe that there is a God or don't even care that there's a God. When you're having a trouble problem with evil, there's an internal moral compass that is messed up inside of you. If there's no God, get over it. Get over it. That's just life. Without God, it's just your opinion. And somebody else has a different opinion. Hitler had a different opinion. Without God. Famous atheist called C.S. Lewis was... Uh, in search of truth and, and he didn't believe that there was a God and all that and, and, and then he ran up against something then he, he eventually believed that there was a God and found out and, and not found out but he researched believed that Jesus was the son of God and all the Bible and all that sort of stuff he writes this in Mere Christianity he says as an atheist my argument against God and this is a, a true argument that many atheists have against God my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. There can't be a God if all this bad stuff happens. He goes this, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Where did I get that from? He goes on to say, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? In fact, just this weekend, read of a teacher in Seattle that told a student who said sexually, I, I'm straight. And he said, that's offensive. Don't, don't say that. Because by you saying you're straight, 
it's saying that opposite of that is crooked. See, why, why is that in the heart of human beings? I believe it's because every human being is made in the image of God. And God has objective truth of right and wrong. And we get a sense of it, every human being. For those who search, the fingerprints of God are all around us. Why? Because they're, they're from a God who wants to be found. It's almost like he throws breadcrumbs all around us to, to draw us to himself. The yearning, even the pain. He wants to be found and he wants to be known. And that's why he sent Jesus to the cross so that we could have reconciliation with God. God, someone who I believe is spaceless and timeless and immaterial until Jesus took on human form. A God who is powerful, who is personal, who's intelligent, and a God who is moral. Why is there a God, I believe, is that the universe must have a cause. Someone made something out of nothing. Why is design demands a designer and moral law demands a moral law giver? I'll close with this. Anthony Flew is a fam- was a famous um, atheist, um, I mean, all over the world, doing debates, writing books. He's still alive. But at age 81, he came out and said, I've come to the conclusion that there is a God. Wrote a book called There Is a God. All of his atheist friends were, were shocked, confused. A bunch of them came together and said, obviously at 81, he's starting to have Alzheimer's. Um, I mean, that, that's all that they could conclude because he was such a stomp, one of the most famous atheists in the world. And he comes out with this book that there's a God, there is a God. So when I heard about this, I did some more research to find out, well, what led him to that? And he says these two things. Well, first of all, let me give you a quote for all his friends that were attacking him. Like, what is, what is your problem? He said this, when I finally came to recognize the existence of God, it was not a paradigm shift because my paradigm remains. He quotes Socrates. We must follow the argument wherever it leads. And at 81, he said this, intelligent design was no longer deniable. He couldn't deny it any longer. And then right before he came out that he believed that there is a God. He was in a debate with my former philosopher, um, philosophy uh, professor at Liberty, Dr. Habermas. And he said this, that the resurrection of Jesus caused him to do some, his quotes, serious rethinking. That's another subject for another time. Does God exist? I believe Paul was like, in him, we, we, we live, we move, and we have our being, meaning we have purpose in life. It's because there is a God. Next week, we're gonna talk about, or answer the question, is Christianity and 
anti-science. This question right here is why the, the huge percentage of 18 to 29-year-olds who have grown up in the church, went to youth group, are walking away from the faith because there's a conflict inside and said, I can't, I can't believe anymore because it's, Christianity is anti-science. We'll unpack that next week. Would you bow your head? I pray. God, thank you for being a God that wants to be known. Thank you for a God that gives life and you even assign people when they live and where they live. And you, you give us breadcrumbs that would lead to you. You put yearnings in the human heart. You put the imprint of your moral law on the hearts of human beings. And most of us instinctively know that there's something greater, bigger, beyond all humans. God, thank you that I came to faith in Christ and in you. Not, not a blind leap of faith, but a faith that there are answers and there is proof. Lord, I pray that you use this series in the hearts of many who hear to help the skeptic, help the seeker, and help the believer. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.